So, I have been talking, and, well, of course, you know, I always talk, but I've been talking this week specifically about procrastination and things like that and how it's no good and... Sometimes life has just this little way of saying, you know what, I'm going to drive this point home. So yesterday, instead of doing the things I'd planned to do, like recording a chapter for you all, sorry about that, I was at the hospital with a family member who has E. coli poisoning. Ugh, terrible. Um, apparently, I don't know. I don't know how they got it, but now... Like, there's all this, like, question of who else is going to get it? Who else in the family is going to be ill? And you can enjoy all that. So I am taking a break from the crazies of that and reading to you all today, which I am very pleased about. Um, last time we saw, um, you know, more of Marianne's upsetness and Eleanor's being such a good sister. And then towards the end, Colonel Brandon arrived. And, um, looked grave and thoughtful, you know, as opposed to usual. Um, so we're going to pick up from there today. Uh, but first we have a few chapter notes to talk about. The first is, um, uh, let's see. What should I, should I go in order in the story? No, that would be too easy for you guys. Keep you on your toes is the way I want to do it. Um, an exchange. We all know in general terms. Um, yeah, I had to pause the podcast because I got a text and now I don't remember what I was saying. But we all know in general terms what an exchange is. But uh, this time, Brandon is going to say something that goes, procured my exchange. Um, and you'll, you'll think to yourself when I read that, what exchange does she mean? What exchange does he mean more appropriately? And after you're done correcting yourself, you'll still be wondering. And I'm here to tell you. That in this case, exchange means switching from one regiment to another, according to the Googles. So, um, that one came up. Um, let's see. What else? Um, oh, divorces. So in this day and age, you could get a divorce. Remember, as I think almost all of us know, the whole reason the Church of England exists is because... The king wanted to divorce his wife, and the Pope said no. And then he's like, you know what? Being aligned with the church in Rome is a really dumb idea. I'm going to start my own religion, and I'm going to be the head of it. And he did. And <laughs> um, anyway, so Church of England does grant divorces. However, it had to be done through an act of parliament, which meant that um, it was a public event and extremely expensive. So, um, it was, it was really, really hard to procure one. Um, and you had to have darn good grounds because you had to go up before parliament and tell them all this stuff and it got super intimate and gross and bad and they had to be really convinced that you needed a divorce. Um, it's not like the good old days. See, now when Henry started the Church of England, he was an absolute monarch for all intents and purposes and he could be like, this is why I want a divorce. I'm getting one. And they were like, yep. You know, and in Jane Austen's era, it was a little different. So divorce is going to come up. Um, and then a spung house, spunging house, sponging house. I suppose they'd say sponging S P U N G I N G. And then it's hyphen house. Sponging house. We'll call it sponging house. Apparently, this is a... Um, I had to look this one up because I was like, what? Um, there's a person who is confined for debt who lives in a sponging house. Apparently, it was like a... Um, kind of like a little jail where they would keep um, debtors. Because uh, that was a thing then um, that there were special jails for people who fell behind in their debt. Um, and in this era, we just send people who fall behind in their debts to regular jail in the United States. So that's, that's awesome. That's, that's how it should work. So much better than the debtors prisons in England. Yeah. Much judgment. Okay. Um, and then lastly, uh, there is a line we're going to say, and 
I don't. I almost don't want to tell you this one because I think it's gonna give too much away. But I, I think I should explain it. Um, so we met by appointment. He to defend, I to punish. Okay, I'm not gonna get into the he and the I, but I will say that um, that by appointment in this circumstance means to duel. Um, you know, for honor. Uh, and dueling was illegal in this period in England. However, it was still very much commonplace. Um, they really cracked down on dueling. Um, I know Victoria really didn't like dueling. You couldn't have your upper class all killing each other off. It just wasn't good for the empire. Um, how are you going to have an empire controlled by a rich, idle upper class if they all are killing one another in duels? Uh, which is why dueling had become illegal. Um, this is not the Victorian era, but I think dueling became illegal in... Oh, well, let me check. Okay, well, I got bored of looking. But it looks like it was formally illegal since the time of the Holy Roman Empire in the 1200s throughout most, most of Europe, but technically it was not treated as illegal. Uh, you could be charged with murder if your duel met in the death of any of its participants which was fairly common, but um, was not always required for honor's purpose, honor's sake. Um, you could duel, and the proper thing might be to do, um, oh, what is that? Uh, the lope, I think they call it. You know, you uh, purposely, you know, fired your pistol in the air over the other man's ear, just to, like, make your point. So honor's assuaged, but neither of you are dead. You know, like, something like that, so that nobody's going to jail, but I saw honor through, you know. Um, kind of, kind of silly. Never really understood duels myself. Like, I get kinda, but I mean, I also don't. And I definitely don't get the whole romanticization of duels. I, you know, that just... Um, anyway, uh... Uh, yeah, so that's dueling. Um, and lastly, we need to talk about Gretna Green. Woohoo! This is an exciting one. I love talking about Gretna Green because it's so... Now this I get the romance of. Um, so Gretna Green is one of the first towns across the border, um, into Scotland. And, um, the Scottish church did not require people who wish to marry to read bans, B-A-N-N-S. Um, and so in England, let me back up, You, if you wanted to get married to somebody, you could A, go to the archbishop and like pay him or be like, hey bro, I know Lord so-and-so, do me a favor. And he would grant you a special wedding license. And, um, then you could get married whenever, wherever you wanted, essentially. You know, the archbishop was going to be your pally pal. Um, or you could go to your local church and ask them to post bans. So for two weeks, I believe the period of time was, um, they would have to, like, put it in the... Uh, village paper if there was one or advertise it like on a village board somehow get the word out that so-and-so wants to marry so-and-so and that meant that there was time that if anyone who objected to your union or anything else could come forward and be like yo you can't let them marry this is not right like he's already married to this other girl trust me um or whatever the case might be in Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, as I said, did not require bans. So you could get married immediately, a.k.a. Las Vegas. So um, you could go across and you could just get married. Like, it was just that easy. And um, due to some fun-worded laws, I think I'll save more details on this when we get to um, Pride and Prejudice for reasons. If you've read Pride and Prejudice, you'll know. Um, but anyway, you could get married not just at the church, you could get married by a blacksmith, um, like there are all other options. So 
Scotland was a place that a lot of people wanted to elope to because obviously elopement in those days didn't just mean, hey, I don't want to have to pay for a big extravagant wedding, so I'm going to go get married somewhere else and I'll have reception when I get back. Because that's kind of what I view elopement as now. Um, elopement back then went more like, our families will not let this happen or we have to marry in a hurry for reasons. Um, so you would go up to Scotland and you would get married fast. And those marriages, like Las Vegas marriages, were viewed not very respectably, but they were just as binding as a regular marriage. So, um, that's Gretna Green, that's Scotland, that's getting married in Scotland. That, those are all my chapter notes. Alright, how did I do? I, I wandered a bit. I guess I'm a little distracted with the whole hospital E. coli thing kind of like hanging out there. So, okay. But anyway, um, yeah. Good times. We will commence with the reading of the chapter now. And here we go. Chapter 9. more sleep than she'd expected, Marianne awoke the next morning with the same consciousness of misery in which she had closed her eyes. Eleanor encouraged her as much as possible to talk of what she felt, and before breakfast was ready they had gone through the subject again and again, with the same steady conviction and affectionate counsel on Eleanor's side, and the same impetuous feelings and varying opinions on Marianne's as before. Sometimes she could believe Willoughby as to be unfortunate, and innocent as herself, at others lost every consolation of the impossibility of acquitting him. At one moment she was absolutely indifferent to the observation of all the world, at another she would seclude herself forever, and at a third could resist it with energy. In one thing, however, she was uniform when it came to the point, in avoiding, where possible, the presence of Mrs. Jennings, and in a determined silence when obliged to endure it. Her heart was hardened against the belief that Mrs. Jennings entering into her sorrows with any compassion. Against the belief of Mrs. Jennings entering into her sorrows with any compassion. No, no, it cannot be, she cried. I guess she cannot feel. Her kindness is not sympathy. Her nature is not tenderness. All that she wants is gossip, and she only likes me now because I supply it. Eleanor had not needed this to be assured of the injustice to which her sister was often led in her opinion of by others, by the irritable refinement of her own mind and the great, too great importance placed on her the delicacies of a strong sensibility and the graces of a polished manner, like half the rest of the world and more than half, if more than half there be that are clever and good, Marianne with excellent abil excellent abilities an excellent disposition was neither reasonable nor candid. She expected from other people the same opinions and feelings as her own, and she judged of their motives by the immediate effect of their actions on herself. Thus the circumstance occurred while the sisters were together in their own room after breakfast, which sunk the heart of Mrs. Jennings still lower in her estimation, because, through her own weakness, it chanced to prove a source of fresh pain to herself, though Mrs. Jennings was governed in it by an impulse of the utmost goodwill. With a letter in her outstretched hands and a countenance gaily smiling from the persuasion of bringing comfort, she entered their room, saying, Now, my dear, I bring you something I'm sure will do you good. Marianne heard enough. In one moment her imagination placed before her a letter from Willoughby, full of tenderness and contrition, explanatory of all that had passed, satisfactory, convincing, and instantly followed by Willoughby himself, rushing eagerly into the room, in force, at her feet by the eloquence of her eyes and the assurances of his letter. The work of one moment was destroyed by the next. The handwriting of her mother, never till then was unwelcome before her, and in the acuteness of the disappointment which followed such an ex ecstasy of more than hope, she felt as if, till that instant, she had never su suffered. The cruelty of Mrs. Jennings' no language within her to reach the, her moments of happiness eloquence could have expressed, 
and she could now reproach her only with the tears which streamed from her eyes with passionate violence, a reproach, however, so entirely lost on its object, after many expressions of pity, she withdrew, still referring to the, her letter for comfort. But the letter, which she was calm enough to read it, brought little comfort. Willoughby filled every page. Her mother was still confident of their engagement, and relying as warmly as ever on his consistency, had only been roused by Eleanor's application to entreat from Marianne greater openness towards them both, and this with such tenderness towards her, and such affection for Willoughby, and such a conviction of their future happiness together, that she wept in agony through the whole of it. All her impertinent impatience excuse me, to be at home again now returned. Her mother was dearer to her than ever, dearer through every excess of her mistaken... Through, through, dearer through the very excess of her mistaken confidence in Willoughby, and she was wildly urgent to be gone. Eleanor, unable herself to determine whether it were very better for Marianne to be in London or at Barton, offered no counsel of her own except a patient till their mother's wishes could be known. At length she obtained her sister's consent to wait for that knowledge. Mrs. Jennings left them earlier than usual, for she could not be easy till the Middletons and the Palmers were able to grieve as much as herself, and positively refusing Eleanor's offer of attendance, went out alone for the rest of the morning. Eleanor, in a, with a very heavy heart, aware of the pain she was going to communicate, by perceiving Marianne's letter how ill she'd succeeded in laying a foundation for it, then sat down to write her mother an account of what had passed, and entreat her directions for the future, while Marianne, who came into the drawing-room on Mrs. Jennings going away, fixed a place at the table where Eleanor wrote, watching the advancement of her pen and grieving over her for the hardship of such a task, and grieving still more fondly for its effect on their mother. In this manner they continued about quarter of an hour, when Marianne, whose nerves could not bear any sudden noise, was startled by a rap at the door. "'Who can this be?' cried Eleanor. "'So early, too. I thought we had been safe.' Marianne moved to the window. "'It is Colonel Brandon,' said she with vexation. "'We are never safe from him.' "'He will not come in, as Mrs. Jennings is from home.' I do not trust to that. She retreated into her own room. A man who has nothing to do with his time has no conscience in his intrusion of that of others. The evident proved her conjecture. Event. Wow, guys. Sorry. The event proved her conjecture right, though it was founded on injustice and error. For Colonel Brandon did come in, and Eleanor, who was convinced that solicitude for Marianne brought him thither, and who saw that solicitude in his disturbed and melancholy look, and in his anxious though brief inquiry after her, could not forgive her sister for esteeming him so lightly. "'I met Mrs. Jennings in Bond Street,' said he after first salutation, and she encouraged me to come in. I was on the more e I was more easily encouraged because I thought it very probable I might find you alone, which I was very desirous of doing. My object, my wish, my soul desiring in it, I hope, I believe it is. It means to be giving comfort. No, I must not say comfort. Will you allow me to my present comfort not present comfort? For conviction, lasting conviction for your sister's mind, my regard for her, for yourself, for your mother, will you allow me to prove it by relating some circumstances no which nothing but very sincere regard, nothing but an earnest desire of being useful? I think I am justified, though there have been many hours I have been spent in convincing myself I am right. Is there not some reason to fear I am wrong? He stopped. That wasn't me, you all. That was the book. He is like a stuttery, stammery fool at this point. Um, that wasn't me. Just saying. And that wasn't you, like, because you weren't listening all the way to me, which I know happens sometimes, and I forgive you. But no, that was him. I understand you, said Eleanor. You have something to tell me of Mr. Willoughby that will open his character further. Your telling will be the greatest act of friendship that can be shown Marianne. My gratitude will be ensured immediately on any information tending to that end, and hers may be gained by it in the same time. Pray let me hear it. 
you shall. And to be brief, when I quitted Barton last October, but this will give you no idea, I must go further back. You will find me a very awkward narrator, Miss Dashwood. I hardly know where to begin. A short account of myself, I believe, will be necessary, and it shall be a short one. On a, such a subject, <sighs> sighing heavily, I can have little temptation to be diffuse. He stopped. Uh, sorry, he stopped for a moment for recollection, and then, with another sigh, went on. You have probably entirely forgotten a conversation. It is not supposed it could make an impression on you. A conversation between us one evening at Barton Park. It was the evening of a dance in which I alluded to a lady I had once known as resembling in some measure your sister, Marianne. Indeed, answered Eleanor. I had not forgotten it. He looked pleased as if by this remembrance and added, if I am not deceived by the uncertainty, the partiality of tender recollection, there is a very strong resemblance between them, in mind as well as person. There is the same warmth of heart, the same eagerness of fancy and spirits. This lady was one of my nearest relations, an orphan from her infancy, and under the guardianship of my father. Our ages were nearly the same, and from our earliest years we were playfellows and friends." I cannot remember a time when I did not love Eliza, and my affection for her as we grew up was such as perhaps judging from my present forlorn and cheerless gravity, you might think me incapable of ever having felt. Hers, for me, was, I believe, fervent as the attachment of your sister to Mr. Willoughby, and it was, though from a different cause, no less unfortunate. At seventeen she was lost to me forever. She was married, married against her inclination, to my brother. Her fortune was large and our family state much encumbered, and this, I fear, is all that can be said for the conduct of one who has at once been her uncle and guardian. My brother did not deserve her. He did not even love her. Okay, I'm going to pause real quick, just your, your, um, because I know I'm doing the, the deep voice, and I know it might be a little weird to follow. So, she's, like, their first cousin, and she's rich, presumably. Um, the younger brother or sister um, of um, Colonel Brandon's dad. Um, she is their their child, and they had some money. And so she's an orphan, and he is her guardian now and looks after her. And they go all grow up, and but. Their family state was much encumbered, he said, so they were in debt. Um, and here's this young girl with a lot of money. What would you do? Well, you would be nice and let her marry your younger son, wouldn't you? Because you're a good person. Well, good for you. I love you for that. But Colonel Brandon's dad was not a good person. And Colonel Brandon's dad said, we need that money for our estate. You're going to marry my oldest son so the money stays with the estate. The younger son goes off and makes his own fortune in the world. He doesn't need your money. This estate really needs money. And this is a convenient way of making sure my heir marries into money. Because it is hard to marry into money. I know Willoughby makes it look easy. But um, in this day and age... Not everybody had money, and the people who started to have a lot of money were not the right sort of people. Um, like the girl that Mr. Willoughby's marrying, his her money comes from her dad's coal mining trade. I mean, like, so, I mean, no, he wasn't a laborer. He wouldn't actually go down in the mines. But there should at least always be a degree of separation between you and how you earned your money. And since she actually, uh, Miss Grace father had actually owned coal mines there's not that degree of separation um so yeah so it was hard to marry a girl with money who came from a respectable family and so colonel brandon's dad saw an opportunity and probably bullied this poor girl into marrying against her will to the older brother um we don't know what kind of threats and things he used but undoubtedly he did because she was married against her will, which was illegal. Women had to give their consent to marriages, but she clearly did not 
want to do it. She just felt like she had no other choice. So she was bullied into getting married. Sad, sad, sad. So sad. Okay, we're moving on. So she married the brother, and um, he said it reflects badly on his dad. My brother did not deserve her. He did not even love her. I had hoped that her regard for me would support her under any difficulty, and for some time it did. But at last, the misery of her situation, for she experienced the greatest unkindness, overcame all her resolution, and though she had promised me that that nothing, but how blindly I relate, I never told you how this was brought on. We were within a few hours of eloping together for Scotland. The treachery or the folly of my cousin's maid betrayed us. I was banished to the house of a a relation far distant, and she was allowed no liberty, no society, no amusement, till my father's point was gained. I had depended on her fortitude too far, and the blow was a severe one. Okay, so there we learn what we just said we didn't know. Um, Brandon was going to elope with her to Scotland. They were just going to go ahead and do it and say, you know, fuck all y'all. We're going to get married anyway. And then it would be too late for dad to do anything. Um, but her maid tattletailed. And so Brandon was sent away to a far house and she was a prisoner in her house. And eventually... He said, I relied on her fortitude. Okay, well, thanks, Brandon. That's sweet. But she has no idea if she's ever going to get rescued or if that's just going to be her fate for the rest of her life. I I don't blame her. I mean, goodness, relied on her fortitude. Ugh, that was a little rude. Um, But anyway, so she agrees at that point to marry the other boy and to give up Colonel Brandon. And marry non-Colonel Brandon, his brother. We don't know what the brother's name is. That's why I called him non-Colonel Brandon, because he's not a colonel. And he's a Brandon. I thought it was funny, and then it seemed really weird, and had to explain it, and now it's extra weird. So I'm going to move on. I had decided on her- oh, I depended on her fortitude too far, and the blow was a severe one. But had her marriage been happy, or young as I- So young as I was then, a few months must have reconciled me to it, or at least I should not now lament it. This, however, was not the case. My brother had no regard for her, and his pleasures were not what they ought to have been, and from the first he treated her unkindly. The consequence of this upon a mind so young, so lively, so inexperienced as Mrs. Brandon's, was but too natural. She resigned herself at first to all the misery of her situation, and happy if it had been she and happy had it been if she had not lived to overcome those regrets with remembrance of me occasioned. But we can wonder at what such a husband to provoke inconsistency, and without a friend to advise or restrain her, for my father only lived a few months after their marriage, and I was with my regiment in the East Indies. She should fall had I remained in England, perhaps, but I meant to promote the happiness of both by my removing from her for years, and for that purpose procured my exchange. Exchange, like we talked about. The shock which her marriage had given me, he continued in a voice of great agitation, was of trifling weight, was nothing to felt what I, when I had learned about two years afterwards of her divorce. And that is what threw this gloom, even now the recollection of what I suffered. Okay, so he's saying she was now Mrs. Brandon, and she was super, super unhappy. Apparently, this is just such a... I wonder at this phrase so often. His pleasures were not what they ought to have been, and he treated her unkindly. Speaking of his older brother, I wonder what his pleasures were. Gosh, I've wondered over this. I'm like, there are so many ways you could interpret that. What were his pleasures? I mean, the treated unkindly part, also. What what do you mean, treated unkindly? How treated unkindly? There's unkindly, there's unkindly, and then there's unkindly. You know, like, this is is a very mild, non-specific thing, and I want some specifics. If you're going to give me gossip, Brandon, give me all the gossip. I need to know 
what was your brother into? What freaky things went on? Were they the freaky kind that are like freaky or were they like freaky or freaky? You know, goodness. What the? And, uh, okay. Anyway, so she fell, quote unquote, um, meaning she had an affair. Uh, so that's what grants the divorce because men get to have affairs all day long and this is all right. She had an affair. They are now got a divorce and it is very upsetting to him. And if only I'd remained, I might've talked her out of having an affair. Like, I, I don't know why people think women have affairs. I, it's like, I don't even know. But anyway, okay, that's where we are. I just had to do the, the, what does that mean? His pleasures were not what they ought to have been. I mean, did he beat her? Like, treated her unkindly? Like, was he just cold and distant? Was he, like, into some freaky-ass bedroom shit that was upsetting? Was he, like... Was he a man whore? I mean, like, I just, I have so many questions. There's so many options. I could list them all, but this podcast would be, become X-rated very quickly. Yes, that is my elderly cat reminding me I need to stay on focus, on task. Focus on task. That's right. That's how you say that. He could, he could say no more, and rising hastily, walked for a few minutes about the room. Eleanor, affected by his relation and still more by his distress, could not speak. He saw her concern and more and coming to her, took her hand, pressed it, and kissed it with grateful respect. A few more minutes of silent exertion enabled him to proceed with composure. It was nearly three years after this unhappy period before I returned to England. My first care when I did arrive was, of course, to seek her, but the search was as fruitless as it was melancholy. I could not trace her beyond her first seducer, and there was every reason to fear that she had been removed from him only to sink deeper into a life of sin. Her legal allowance was not adequate for her fortune, nor sufficient for her comfortable maintenance, and I learnt I learned from my brother that the power of receiving it had been made over some months before to another person. He imagined, and calmly he could imagine it, that her extravagant and consequent distress had obliged her to dispose of it for some immediate relief. Okay, so she gets an annuity and, um, and like an allowance, essentially, from their marriage, um, or possibly from her, uh, inheritance and the brother supposes that because someone else is now getting it it's no longer her name receiving the checks so brandon's brother suggests she might have sold out her annuity to get the immediate cash which of course is always a big ripoff um or you know she might now be under the protection of some other seducer who found means of securing her income for himself and then she gets to stay with him. I mean, there, there are some other options. I don't know if you grew up in the era of call JG Wentworth ads on TV, but they're now stuck in my heads. But anyway, that those are, that was a firm that ran ads on TV about if you had a structured settlement, but you needed money, they would buy out your settlement from you. And, of course, they always take a huge slice off the top, and it's such a con job. But, like a lot of those things, people who need money don't have a lot of options, and they do what they have to do. It's just... Anyway, okay. But that's what they're talking about. At last, however, after I'd been six months in England, I did find her. Regard for a former, former servant of my own, uh, who had since fallen into misfortune carried me to visit him in a sponging house where he was confined for debt and there in the same house under similar confinement was my unfortunate sister so altered so faded so worn down by acute suffering of every kind hardly could i believe the melancholy and sickly figure before me to be the remains of the lovely blooming healthful girl on whom i had once d dated okay what 
I endured in so beholding her, but I have no right to wound your feelings to attempt to describe it. I have painted you... I have pained you too much already. That she was, to all appearance, in the last stage of consumption, was, yes, in such a situation, it was my greatest comfort. She has tuberculosis. She's in the dying stages of tuberculosis. They called tuberculosis the consumptive disease. Although there were some other diseases that fell under the realm of consumption, because, you know, until you could look at things on a microscopic level, you couldn't really be sure what was what. But in general, consumption was tuberculosis. Uh, there's a really good documentary out there about tuberculosis. I recommend watching. I think it's on Amazon Prime right now. Um, I know we all dislike Amazon, but I like documentaries and Amazon Prime has really good ones. Anyway, um, they called tuberculosis the white death and the white plague. And it was, um, it was a huge killer. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people died from tuberculosis. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway, so that's consumption. Life could do nothing for her beyond giving time for better preparation for death, and that was given. I saw her and placed in comfortable lodgings and under proper attendance. I visited her every day during the rest of her short life. I was within her and I was with her. Oops. Oh my god, that was a slip of the tongue. I was with her in her last moments. Wow. Sorry about that. Again, he stopped to recover himself, and Eleanor spoke her feelings in an exclamation of tender concern at the fate of his unfortunate friend. Your sister, I hope, cannot be offended by the resemblance I have fancied between her and my poor disgraced relation. Their fates, their fortunes cannot be the same. And had the natural sweet disposition of the one been guarded by a firmer mind or a happier marriage, she would have been all that you would live to see the other to be. But to what does this all lead? I seem to have been distressing you for nothing. Ah, Miss Dashwood, a subject such as this, untouched for fourteen years, is dangerous to handle at all. I will be more collected, more concise. She left to my care her only child, a little girl, the offspring of her first guilty connection, who was then about three years old. She loved the child and had always kept it with her, it was a valued and a precious trust to me, which I gladly and gladly would I have discharged it in the strictest sense by watching over her education myself, had not the nature of our situations allowed it. But I had no family, no home, and my little Eliza was therefore placed at school. Okay, because he's a man, he cannot raise this child. And he's saying, I would have done it all myself. I would have... I would have let her live with me. I would have watched over her education. But he has no family. He had no home of his own. He'd just gotten back from deployment in his regiment. Um, so he can't He can't do these things. <sighs> Even when you were rich, there were still, like, you know, limits. Like, uh, it's a good reminder. So he places her at school, um, which um, you could send toddlers to school i mean like school was a catch-all term for a place to which one send one's children um yeah it, it, school is you know it's kind of in, well okay I, i'm getting off topic i'm gonna stay focused focused so focused I saw her there whenever I could, and after the death of my brother, which happened about five years ago, and which left to me the possession of the family property, she frequently visited me at Delaford. I called her a distant relation, but I am well aware that I have in general been suspected of a nearer connection with her. It is now three years ago, she had just reached her fourteenth year, that I removed her from school and placed her under the care of a very respectable woman residing in Dorsetshire, and she had the charge of four or five other girls about the same time of life, and for two years I had every reason to be pleased with her situation. But last February, almost a twelve-month back, she suddenly disappeared. I had allowed her, imprudently as it turned out, at her earnest desire to go to Bath with one of her young friends, who was attending her father there for his health. I knew him to be a very good sort of man, and I thought well of his daughter, better than she deserved, for, with the most obs 
obstinate and ill-judged secrecy, she would tell nothing, would give no clue, though she certainly knew all. He, her father, a well-meaning but not quick-sighted man, could really, I believe, give no information, for he had been generally confined to the house, while the girls were ranging all over the town and making what acquaintance they chose. He tried to convince me, as thoroughly as he was convinced himself, of his daughter's being entirely unconnected in the business. In short, I could learn nothing but that she was gone. All for the rest of eight long months was left to conjecture. What I had thought, what I had feared, what may be imagined, and what I suffered too. Okay, so she is living with this, like, she's essentially, you know, boarding with this lady who has other girls, all about the same age, and so they kind of live in a girl's home, I guess you'd call it, and um, she wants to go off to Bath and, like, party with a friend of hers. And he's like, okay, sure, have fun, here's a little money, you know, like any good guardian would do. And, um, so she goes off, and the dad stays at home sick, and the two girls, instead of having, you know, a watchful mother or lady companion to watch out for them, they were left to their own devices to wander around town and to talk to whomever they wished and to do whatever they wished essentially um not not really a proper situation for a young lady in these times uh and yeah they're only 14 so good grief that's a little young to just i don't know it seems young but i know what i was doing when i was 14 and i would have like been like really annoyed if you know i heard 30 something year old me tell 14 year old me that i'd be like Psh, what are you talking about old person Anyway, so, yeah. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, and then Brandon is trying to, like, find out what happened to the girl after she runs off. And the girl friend who she'd been staying with says nothing. Although he's sure that she knows what's going up. But she said nothing. And the dad is like, I've been at home sick. Sorry, man. Too bad. And so... Brandon has eight months of, like, sitting around just, like, knowing that he has let down, again, his former love and this child whom he really likes, Eliza. So sad. Oh, unring bell. I'm not done ringing. Okay. So, all of this is going down, and then, um... So she's run away. There's only one reason girls run away in these, I don't know, you know, which is kind of silly. I mean, why wouldn't a girl want to run away for other reasons? But I mean, who, who didn't want to run away and join the circus at one point in their life? I mean, eh. but anyway, it's generally assumed that when a girl runs away, it's because of a man. She's been seduced by a man, and otherwise, why would she leave her comfortable situation, um, if not for a man? I know. I know. I feel it. I feel it, you guys. I know, too. But that was the general assumption, which I have to say, because Eleanor's next thing and what otherwise seemed like a really weird leap of logic, but it made sense in that era. Good heavens, cried Eleanor. Could it be? Could Willoughby? The first news that reached me of her, he continued, came from the letter herself last October. It was forwarded to me from Delaford, and I received it on the very morning of our intended party to Whitwell, and this was the le reason for my leaving Barton so suddenly, which I am sure at the time must have appeared strange to everybody, but I believe, and I believe gave offence to some. Little did Will Mr. Willoughby imagine, I suppose, when his looks to censure me for incivility at breaking up the party that I was called away had to the relief of one whom he had made poor and miserable. But had he known it, what else would have availed? Would he have been less gay or less happy in the smiles of your sister? No, he had already done that, which no man can feel for another would do. He had left the girl whose youth and innocence he had seduced in a situation of the utmost distress, with no credible home, no help, no friends, ignorant of his address, 
he had left her promising to return. He neither returned nor wrote nor relieved her. This is beyond everything, exclaimed Eleanor. Okay, so what he's saying happened is that she ran away from Beth with Willoughby, um, and... Or they might have stayed in Bath, but they ran away from her friends. And he probably did uproot her to some, you know, small town. And they rented a room, probably, where he entertained himself with her for whatever period of time. And then he left and said, don't worry, I'll come back. And then he leaves and um, probably didn't pay the bill. And the people who own the room a wait and they wait and then they say you gotta pay that bill and she is left in a place she doesn't know where she is surrounded with people she doesn't know who they are she has no money she doesn't know where he lives she does not have his address she can't write to him you can't what what can she do she's stranded um he might as well left her on an island. Uh, she, well, okay, she is on an island. Oh my god, that's hysterical. She is on an island. England is an island. <laughs> I'm dying. I'm gonna pause so I can laugh. Okay, that was too funny. Um, I'm hysterical. But, uh, yeah, so Willoughby seduces her, abandons her, and then, so she finally, probably having to swallow a great deal of pride, finally writes to Brandon and is like, um, help? You know, which I don't, she must have had to have given up all hope by the time she wrote to Brandon. Because as long as she believed Willoughby was coming back, she would not have written. Because Brandon finds her, he's going to separate her from Willoughby. They wouldn't be allowed to get married. She knows that. Because, of course, Brandon's going to say he's an inappropriate fellow. You can't marry this inappropriate fellow. So she knows that if she writes to Brandon, she will lose her chance of marrying Willoughby. So she had to abandon all hope of marrying Willoughby before she wrote to Brandon. And it took her eight months to see the light and swallow her pride and for the letter to get to Brandon that, please come to help me. I just, I can't imagine how tragic a circumstance for that poor girl, what she must have gone through in those eight months um, it's just terrible. It's terrifying. I, I feel so sorry for her. Um, now she might, it might have been a whole eight months. We don't know how long Willoughby stayed with her. He might've stayed with her for seven months, but I mean, he had to have been there. We know he got to Barton Park in, oh, September. So he had to have at least left her. Like, she had to have waited for at least over a month before she wrote to Brandon. Because we know that Willoughby and Brandon were both at the park for that long. So it had to have been over a month that she waited, at least, if not longer. <sighs> so sad. So unfortunate. I'm moving on. Okay, here we go. His character is now known to before you. Expensive, dissipated, and worse than both. Knowing this as I have now known it many weeks, guess what I must have felt on seeing your sister as fond of him as ever, on being assured that she was to marry him. Guess what I must have felt for all your sakes. When you came last... When I came to you last week and found you alone, I came determined to know the truth, though irresolute as to what to do when it was known. My behavior must have seemed strange to you then, but you will now comprehend it. To... Suffer you all to be so deceived, to see your sister. But what could I do? I had no hope of interfering with the success, and sometimes I thought your sister's influence might yet reclaim him. But now, after such dishonorable usage, who can tell what were his designs on her? Whatever they may have been, however, she may now, or therefore she will doubtless will, turn with gratitude towards her own condition, when she compares it with that of my poor Eliza." When she considers the wretched and hopeless situation of this poor girl and pictures herself with an affection for him as strong, still as strong as her own, and with a mind tormented by self-reproach which it must attend through all her life, surely this comparison will have its use for her. 
she will feel her own sufferings to be nothing. They proceed from no misconduct and can bring no disgrace. On the contrary, every friend must still be made more her friend by them. Concern for her unhappiness and respect for her fortitude under it must strengthen every attachment. Use your own discretion, however, in communicating, in communicating to her what I have told to you. You will know best what will be its effect. But I had not seriously... But had I not it seriously, and from my heart believed it might be of any service, might lessen her regrets, I would not have suffered myself to trouble you with this account of my family's affliction, which a recital may seem to have intended to raise myself at the expense of others. Eleanor's thanks followed the speech with grateful earnestness, attended to with the insurance of her expecting a material advantage to Marianne from the communication of what had passed. I have been more pained voice i have been more pained said she by her endeavours to acquit him than all by the rest for it irritates her mind more than the most perfect conviction of his unworthiness can do now though at first she will suffer much i am sure she will become easier have you she continued after a short silence ever seen mr willoughby since you left him at barton yes i have he replied gravely once i have one meeting was unavoidable. Eleanor, startled by his manner, looked at him anxiously, saying, What? Have you met him too? I could meet him no other way. Eliza confessed to me, though reluctantly, the name of her lover, and when he was returned to town, which was within a fortnight of myself, we met by appointment, he to defend, I to punish his conduct. We returned unwounded, and the meeting therefore never got abroad. By abroad, he means, like, it never got talked about. Like, because it didn't resolve in a death with either one of them, nobody had to talk about it to town. It was in the subject of gossip. <coughs> Eleanor sighed over the fancy necessity of this, but to a man and a soldier, she presumed not to censure it. Such, said Colonel Brandon after a pause, has been the unhappy resemblance between the fate of mother and daughter and so imperfectly have i discharged my trust is she still in town no as soon as she recovered from her lying in for i found her near her delivery i removed her and the child to the country and there she remains recollecting soon afterwards that he was probably dividing eleanor from her sister he put an end to the visit, receiving her again with the same grateful acknowledgments and leaving her full of compassion and esteem for him. End chapter 9